0: Happy New Year and Happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face to face before the Lord together in worship this morning as promised we will be finishing up Matthew chapter 2 today and we will go from verses 12 on down through verse 23 and remember Matthew is framing this extended introduction to his gospel which spans three chapters to the end of letting us know that Jesus is the promised son of David who will bring the blessing of Abraham to all nations. He tries to prove this to us by laying out Jesus' pedigree in chapter 1. He shows us that Jesus does have the right lineage by way of Joseph's adoption of him. Joseph is a son of David. Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary. And then Joseph takes him into his household so that Jesus is a legal heir to the throne of David. He has the right pedigree. Chapter 2, where we are at today, shows us that Jesus fulfills the right prophecies. We talked about one last week as he was born in Bethlehem, and we will see three more patterns that Jesus fulfills this week. Chapter 3 brings us, having shown us Jesus has the right pedigree, that he fulfills the right prophecies, chapter 3 shows us that Jesus has the right endorsements at his baptism He is given the full endorsement of God the Father and of God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of David, who brings the blessing of Abraham to all nations. Matthew is trying to authenticate Jesus' identity as the king for us beyond a shadow of a doubt. He's doing a little bit like... uh, If you've ever been plagued by all of those sort of security questions on your digital accounts, you know, you go to sign into your email or into a streaming service, and all of a sudden, here are three easy questions for you to answer so that we can know you are you. What is the name of your neighbor's cat? (laughs) What is your sister's best friend's cousin's middle name? And if you're like me, eventually you take some guesses, and finally they go, well, just click here and we'll send you an email so you can get in. I'm like, why didn't we start there? Uh, but the goal, not as annoying as those things are, is to show that you are you. And so Matthew is sort of laying out some authenticating questions and answering them for us about Jesus. He wants us to know that Jesus is the king, so much so that if you've been with us as we've started through Matthew's gospel, we're sort of like, all right, Matthew, we get it. But it's, it's crucial that we grasp this truth because by the end of Matthew's gospel, everybody is going, this is not the king we expected. The Messiah is supposed to come on horseback. He's supposed to overthrow all of our enemies. He's not supposed to die on a cross. God's plan, well, wasn't immediately apparent Jesus overthrows our greatest enemy, Satan and sin and death by way of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. He's ruling and reigning, Matthew says, right now, and he has set his people on mission to call all nations to repentance and faith in him so that they might escape the wrath of God that is coming on all who persist in rebellion against God in all who reject the crucified and risen king. And so, Matthew wants us to know for sure before Jesus is crucified that he is indeed the Messiah. Crucified messiahs don't make a whole lot of sense. It's oxymoronic. It's like saying uh, frozen steam or Alabama national championship 2024. It doesn't make any sense and so Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is the king. With that said, would you please stand with me in honor of reading God's holy and perfect word? Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Now when they had departed, and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. May he carve its eternal truth on our hearts, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, knowing that you have the words of life, that you bind up our wounds, that your strength is made perfect in weakness. And so we pray for your strength and your kindness and your love and your Holy Spirit this morning. Meet us in this place. Shake us awake to the reality of Jesus Christ ruling and reigning over all things. Do not allow us to be distracted by this world, and by the flesh, and by the devil. Meet us here, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So if you remember at this point in the story, the magi have seen the star, they've come from the east, and then the star just went out of vision. And so they stopped and talked with Herod who was king, Kind of. He's like this Roman puppet king in a lot of ways. But but he liked to call himself the king. He liked his power very much. And so they're talking with Herod, who is the current king of the Jews, and they say, Hey, where's the, the real king of the Jews who was just born? Can you help us get there? Herod says, I can't, but I have some guys who will know. And so he gets together the scribes and the Pharisees, not Pharisees, scribes and experts in the law, there's somebody else there, rulers of the law, they tell Jesus, or they tell Herod, who tells the Magi, that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And so Herod says, you guys go find this child and then report back to me because I would like to worship him also. Wink, wink. So the Magi go... They find Jesus, the star reappears, they they fall down, and they worship. And after they worship, in verse 12, they are told in a dream not to return to Herod. Because as we know, Herod does not intend on worshiping Jesus. And so they they go home to their country another way. Then we are presented with Joseph. Who? Maybe is settling down a little bit in Bethlehem, and in the middle of the night is told that he must wake and flee from Herod, because Herod will bring death to the little town of Bethlehem. Indeed, we see it in verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked, swindled, made fun of, mocked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region, who were two years old or under, this is about the age Jesus would have been, he wants to make sure he gets him. And so instead of just killing one child as he had planned, in his rage, he says, I'm going to kill all the children in Bethlehem. Herod is the mad king. He is willing to do whatever it takes to maintain his own rule he, he's about self-preservation maybe nowadays we might say Herod is a, is a go-getter he, he made his dreams come true he went after his dreams and he's the king and now he, he's protecting that dream at any cost even the killing of children fits with his character. Remember, he killed his favorite wife and three of his sons. Last week, I told you he had arranged at his own death to have prominent members in the community killed when he died so that everybody would mourn his loss. He was an egomaniac. His own rule was chief in his affections. I think it's easy to to stand back at a passage like this a little bit aghast. A government official killing children. Easy to be aghast until we think a little bit more about it. We think about our own day and we recognize that Herod's villainy pales in comparison to that of Planned Parenthood. Like-minded groups that lie to expectant mothers and fathers, telling them that it would be better to kill their children than to care for them. That if they have children, their dreams will be ruined. That really, they don't have children in the womb, but just a a clump of cells. They lie. May appeal to the worst parts of people. Use fear and this love of self to help justify murder. Their lies have been very successful. I mean, maybe some of you, imagine in a room this big, some of us have fallen prey to those sorts of lies and committed the sin of abortion. If that's you, I I want you to know that there is grace and forgiveness and mercy for you. That Jesus loves and forgives murderers. You need look no further than the Apostle Paul. I want you to know that you would fit right in with this group. There is not one among us who has not sinned against a holy God. There is not one among us who does not deserve the wrath of God stretched out across eternity. And so if you have fallen prey to these lies and you have committed even this sin, Jesus' blood is enough. I welcome you to uh, repent and enjoy the forgiveness that God offers through Christ. You'll, You'll fit right in with us. And I think part of what that repentance looks like is joining with the people of God in fighting against the culture of death that we inhabit. It means working against the murder of children in the womb by prayer and by giving to causes like pregnancy support centers. It means volunteering to help serve some of those same places. It means supporting legislation that protects the lives of the unborn. It means promoting biblical teaching about God, marriage, and family. There's so many lies out there in our culture about what sex is for. Nobody thinks it's actually for procreation. So that the child becomes a burden rather than the blessing that children are. So many of us have bought into the lies of the sexual revolution that we have adjusted our theology to fit with it. Friends, God's design for marriage and family is good. It's for the flourishing of men and women and children and societies. God's word is good, and we can trust it. We must fight the madness of Herods in our culture who would use their power to do away with their enemies. Even the smallest of children must not only fight the Herods in our culture, but uh, the Herods within ourselves. You know, all of us, apart from Christ, stand opposed to him just as Herod did. All of us are in rebellion against him. And apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, all of us would gladly have driven nails through his hands and his feet. We all have rejected the rule of Christ. We all are like our father Adam in rebellion against God. We all deserve God's judgment. That's what the cross is about. Jesus Christ taking the judgment of God due to us for our sins so that when we turn from our sins and trust in him, his death becomes our death, his life becomes our life. The gospel is about double imputation. We get all of Jesus' righteousness. He takes all of our sins and sorrows. He takes the punishment that we deserve. We take the eternal blessing of resurrection life together with God and his people. The blessing that only he deserves. This is the good news of the Christian gospel. If you're a non-Christian, you can take hold of that life. If you repent and trust Christ... Uh, Don't live like Herod, rejecting the rule of the king. Uh, Be like the magi who come and bow down and worship. My Christian friend, there is still yet a little Herod in you. The presence of sin has not been removed from your life. Yes, in Christ we are free from the penalty of sin. We are free from the power of sin together with the Holy Spirit now uh, we can obey God. We're free from its penalty and its power but we are not yet free from the presence of sin. There is still worldliness and fleshliness in us that must be fought against. There is a little Herod in us constantly saying, you don't have to do things God's way. You can do them your way. We must resolve to stifle that voice, to, to choke out the little Herod within. We must resolve to sow, not to our flesh, but to the Holy Spirit, to crucify the flesh daily. And this is what Joseph does. He crucifies his flesh. He gives up control of his own life so that Christ can have control. There's a great contrast in our text between him and Herod. Herod is rejecting Jesus. He's trying to eliminate Jesus, and he just can't do it. Whereas Joseph, well, Joseph's life is is interrupted by Jesus. He's told that he should take a, a allegedly virgin girl as his wife because what's conceived in her is from God. He has a decision. Will he take... Jesus as his son and Mary as his wife? Or will he trust himself, rule himself? He was a righteous man in the community. He had a good reputation. So for him to take this apparent adulterer as his wife and this boy as his son would come at great social cost. He could kiss his sterling reputation goodbye and instead get ready for slander. Joseph is just a cuckold. His wife is no more than a harlot. Joseph was willing to pay the cost. God wanted something different for his life, and Joseph bent the knee. He obeyed God. It didn't stop there. He's in Bethlehem. Mary is his wife. Jesus is his son. He's named him Jesus, like the angel said, because Jesus will save his people from their sins. And you can imagine, maybe Joseph has began to think and dream about what life will be like in Bethlehem. You know, he's looking around. There's honest work for a carpenter. There's good schools he likes being around his family. He's having visions of a, a white picket fence and a man cave. And then, verse 13. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Imagine Joseph waking up in a cold sweat. He has a decision to make again. Is he going to move again at the word of the Lord? There's no hesitation. He answers the bell. He he moves. He will go down to Egypt. And then we learn later, after he's been in Egypt for some time, verse 19, When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead." And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Joseph, it seems like, Every time he falls asleep, you know, he drinks a little chocolate milk before bed, he has some weird dreams, angels show up, and they tell him to move. If I were him, I would be thinking about not sleeping. All of this uprootedness, all of this moving, doesn't make a whole lot of sense from his perspective. Really, it's funny, God often lets us see his plans before he reveals to us his purposes. The plan is for Joseph to move around all over the place like Carmen Sandiego. He doesn't know where in the world he's going next. He doesn't know why God is doing this or that in his life. And I don't think that he gets to know until he gets to heaven. But we, in the text, get to see God's purposes for the movement. We'll come to those in a minute but but first i want to point out that though joseph's life was an unpredictable roller coaster he obeyed i mean things for him were an unexpected adventure i do wonder if joseph was at all like bilbo baggins and thought to himself i have no use for adventure nasty disturbing uncomfortable things make you late for dinner But for him, it was dangerous business going out of his door and going to sleep. God called him repeatedly to dangerous actions. Actions that cost him obedience that might not have made sense to him. Take Mary as your wife. Flee to Egypt. Take the boy Jesus as your son. Name him Jesus. Return from Egypt. But not that way. Go out here to Galilee and into Nazareth. Joseph has lots of changes. The word of God confronts his life over and over again. And Joseph, over and over again, says, yes, Lord, I will obey. And his obedience, one of the wonderful things about it, is that it is immediate. Sometimes I will say to my kids, if obedience is slow, it's disobedience. Maybe you've heard that too, other kids that are in here. We want immediate obedience as parents. And Joseph shows us that. He's ready to obey God. Church, be like Joseph. Ready to obey God no matter what he asks of you. This is, of course, easier said than done. I think it's one of the miraculous things in this passage that Joseph obeys uh, so Decisively and so quickly. I mean, how often are we, when we recognize what God's word would have of us, paralyzed by fear, by doubt? How often do we make excuses why God, I can't obey you on that matter? Don't you know? Friends, we must repent of our fears and doubts and trust the word of God more than our own feelings, more than our own circumstances, more than our own minds. God knows better than you. We ought to obey God quickly and decisively. We don't want to be like Gideon, laying out fleece. Now, some of you are going, what? Gideon was great, you know, he wants to know the the will of God, he lays out fleece. Do you remember the story, though? It's in Judges 6, you can read it this afternoon, I'll summarize a little bit. God shows up to this nobody Gideon and says, you are a mighty man of valor. I'm going to defeat the Midianites through your leadership and your military action. The first thing I want you to do is I want you to tear down your father's altar to Baal. It's probably the altar for the whole town. And so Gideon says, all right. But he does it at night so that there's not much confrontation until the morning. He chops down the, the altar to Baal. He chops down the Asherah tree. And then uses the wood from the Asherah tree to offer sacrifices to Yahweh on the altar he's just built. It's pretty good so far. But then, as the Midianites marshal their resources against Israel, he begins to have doubts. He's supposed to lead the people against them in military victory. He begins to question the word of God. And so he gets those fleece and he says, just, just one thing, Lord, I know, know that you've given me a couple angelic visits. I know that you've given me success and I have no reason to doubt your word. But if you could, would you please make this fleece that I'm laying out overnight, would you just make it super wet and the ground around it dry? And the Lord in his kindness does just that. Still, that's not enough for Gideon. He goes, well, you know, it could have been a weird, you know, what's the, uh, atmospheric conditions, weird weather patterns. So just, Lord, don't get mad. Don't get mad. One, one more night, we'll lay off fleece again, and this time make the ground wet and the fleece dry. And then I'll know that you've called me to take on The Midianites, so he he does that, the Lord condescends again in his kindness, lets Gideon know. Still, Gideon's not so sure, and the Lord's like, Gideon, go on down to the outside of their camp and just listen to them talk. And so he sneaks down there, and there are whispers in the camp. And they're like, there's the sword of Gideon is coming. And they're like all freaked out. And then you get that wonderful story of him and his 300, and there's trumpets, and there's lights, and there's victory. And Gideon is to be emulated in a lot of ways but not in the laying out of the fleece. The laying out of the fleece is him following his heart and his feelings rather than the word of God. Gideon should have taken God at his word. The fleece was unnecessary. Brothers and sisters, we ought not be people who are blown this way and that way by our feelings, but those who believe the word of God and trust it must repent of our fears and our doubts and of being emotionally driven. We want to believe God's word like Joseph and obey all the way, right away, with a happy heart. That one's for you kids. You can be like Joseph. Obeying your parents all the way, right away, with a happy heart. Men! Men! You specifically can be like Joseph. In this passage, he is doing what is best for his family. You know what's best for not only his family, but your family? Leading them according to God's word. Brothers, we should lead our families by providing them with spiritual nourishment. We should be committed to teaching our wives and our children the word of the Lord. We should be the chief repenters in our home. We should be those who are immediately obedient to God's word. We should set the tone and the standard. We should also spend time in family devotions. We should be praying with our families, leading out on that. Are you doing that, men? It's very simple, but we should be doing it pray with your wife and your children. It, it is never too late to get started. And there are all kinds of really good resources to help you. If you have younger children, I, I'll, I have all kinds of good things for you, but, but, uh, and, and April has good things for you. I love Kevin DeYoung, and it has a terrible title. but It's like the biggest Bible, bigger Bible storybook, and there's all kinds of pictures. It's great, you just open that bad boy up at dinner time, or at nap time, or at bedtime. You read a chapter out of it. It takes maybe three minutes. Pray, and boom—you've done it. If you don't have kids in your home, maybe you're a young married couple, or an older married couple, or a couple that just hasn't had children. Uh, another good resource for you uh, might be Joel Beeke's uh, "Family Worship Guide," "Family Worship Bible Guide." I had it written down. And it's just, it has every chapter in the Bible. So what you do, you read a chapter in the Bible. Last night, my family did Genesis 1. I think that was last night. But you read Genesis 1, and then there's like half a page, and there's like two thoughts and a couple questions to stir up discussion. And it's all done in about five, ten minutes. Those simple actions will change your home. It will orient you towards the Lord in a way that we just aren't oriented in our culture. I think one of my my favorite things about going through the book of Leviticus in the past was learning just how God-centered you would have to be. Always thinking about what would honor God. From what you put into your body by way of food, to what you put on your body by way of clothing, to where you went. We want to orient ourselves around God all the time. Not just on Sunday mornings. Definitely on Sunday mornings when we gather for the Lord's Day. But also through the week. We want to leave here. We want to disciple men. We want to disciple our families in following Jesus. We want to follow him together. The stories in this book are our stories, dear Christians. These are our stories. We have stories and songs as the people of God. The songs part, you know, maybe you're intimidated by. I'll you, in my house, we'll do a little Bible story and then we'll sing a song together. We'll have a song for, for that week or month or whatever. I have been doing great at it recently. I just sort of cop out and sing the doxology a lot. But when we're, when we're on point, you know, we might say, how firm a foundation is our song this week or this month? And we're going to learn that together as a family. If you have trouble, you're like, oh, we can't sing, neither can Chelsea or I. Uh, but Spotify and YouTube are really good blessings. You can use them to help you. These songs are, are available. We, we, the point here is, You can lead your family, men, like Joseph, to obey the Word of God by teaching the Word of God to them from stories in the Bible and from songs that we sing. Teach stories and songs. If you you want to see your family really flourish, really grow, really delight in the Lord, make family devotions a priority And make the Lord's Day the biggest priority in your life, in your week. Make this gathering the most exciting thing you do every week. We try to do that. We pass out ice cream and things on Sunday. Sunday's on Sunday. Gathering here, we want to be reminded that Sunday is not just a day of rest in the Lord. It is a feast day of joy. We're happy to be here and to be together So brothers, be like Joseph. Do what is best for your family. Teach the word of the Lord. Do whatever it takes. And do it. Do it now. You can start small and build up. Really small, easy changes will matter in the long run. Think of the importance of doing it now instead of waiting when when I think of Joseph's own life. When Jesus and Mary faced their most difficult circumstances and challenges. Joseph was not there for them to lean on. Jesus went to the cross alone. And on the cross he looked down at his mother standing not with his father. Because his father had passed. Brothers, you don't know when the Lord is going to call you home to himself. Teach your family now to obey God. Come what may, there is purpose in God's movements of Joseph. Joseph doesn't know them right away, but we do. Look back at verse 14. Joseph rose, took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew is quoting Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, and his goal is to conjure up two meaningful associations in our minds. One, we are to understand that the word here is in reference to Israel's going down into Egypt where Joseph provided for them as Pharaoh's right-hand man. And then we are to remember that Israel became slaves in Egypt, and then God called Israel, as his son, out of Egypt. With me? So, we are to understand that Jesus is somehow a fulfillment of this action, this pattern in the life of Israel. They're in slavery, and then they are saved, out of Egypt. This is a major theme in Matthew's gospel. He wants us to recognize that Jesus is the new Israel. He goes down into Egypt before returning to the promised land. Jesus is the true and faithful Israelite who fulfills all the covenant's obligations. He'll reconstitute Israel around himself by picking 12 disciples, corresponding to the 12 Tribes. Uh, there's more, but we need to move on. Here's the point: Jesus is the new Israel, God's unique Son, who He loves. That's the first association Matthew is wanting us to make. The second one is this: Jesus is the prophet like Moses, who is promised. He's the new Moses. It's a sort of a hat tip to. Hosea's prophecy to to signal us to this reality, out of Egypt I called my son. This this is seen more clearly when we consider the background of Herod's slaughter of the infants. You remember Moses' life and how the book of Exodus opens up, right? There's those ominous words, there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. Israel's multiplying, that Pharaoh gets afraid, and he begins oppressing the Israelites. And what does he do? Well, he writes an executive order to have the Hebrew midwives kill the children, the sons that are born to the Hebrew women. Then those great champions of the faith, Shipra and Puah, refuse to go along with the order. They preserve life. Boys continue to be born, and Pharaoh steps up his game. He says, all right, All the kids that are born, all the sons that are born to the Israelites, they need to be cast into the Nile. They need to be killed. And I'm going to have the Egyptians help with that effort. And that's when we're introduced to Moses, who's cast into the Nile not to die, but upon an ark made just for him that preserves his life by the grace of God. He's taken into Pharaoh's household. Eventually, he goes into exile. He comes back into Egypt and then leads God's people out of Egypt again. Moses escapes Pharaoh's infanticide, escapes Pharaoh's anger, and eventually overthrows Pharaoh's successor. One of the wonderful themes in Exodus is we really see brightly God's fulfilling, fulfilling, one of the fulfillings of his promise. To Adam and Eve, this pattern of the seed of the serpent at war with the seed of the woman. Seed of the serpent always tries to kill the seed of the woman, but ultimately ends up with its head crushed. Moses defeats the Egyptian king, who, I mean, it's a little on the nose, Lord, you know. He he wears a snake on his crown. God's purposes are fulfilled in Moses. And Matthew wants us to see, here is one like Moses, the prophet that is to come. He's the final snake crusher. Matthew's going to drive this point home more and more as we move through the gospel. But one of the ways he does it here is he, he winks at Exodus 4.19 in verse 20. Now just listen to verse 20. "'Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel.'" For those who sought the child's life are dead. You'll notice he's not speaking just of Herod, it's in the plural, those. Yeah, well, why is that? Well, listen to Exodus chapter 4, verse 19. For those who sought the child's life are dead. This is not by accident. The Bible is a story told by God, and the whole tapestry pictures Christ. Jesus is the new Moses. His life is threatened as a baby. He comes out of Egypt. He will cross through the waters of baptism in chapter 3. He will pass the tests in the wilderness in chapter 4. And then he will stand upon the mountain of God and deliver the words of God to the people of God in chapter 5. He is the new and better Moses. The pattern of Israel's birth and of Moses' life is a prediction of Jesus, just like the sacrificial system. I think Too often, we think of prophecy only in terms of prediction. But the Bible conceives of it not only in terms of prediction, but in patterns and types. We're introduced to another one in verse 18. A voice was heard, Matthew's interpreting the events that happened in Bethlehem through the book of Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. If you turn to Jeremiah 31, you find Rachel is depicted as crying over her children going into exile from her grave. It is her lament that is the first point of contact. The death of children is to be mourned. But if you read in Jeremiah 31, you learn there's a little bit more going on. She is pictured as weeping over the exile, and she's pictured here as weeping over the babies. But, but Matthew, I think, wants us to see more. In Jeremiah 31, Rachel is rebuked with the Lord's promise of hope. And of the new covenant. God comes to this metaphorical Rachel crying over the exile and promises that the exile will end, that the tears will stop, that glory will come. And likewise, here we are to recognize. That though Herod has struck down children in Bethlehem, he was still unable to lay a finger on the chosen son of God. Though Herod try as he might to upset the perfect plans of God, he was not successful. Jesus Christ will save his people. He brings hope to all who trust in him. He will end that great spiritual exile, the separation between God and his people. He will reconcile all who are in Christ to God and to one another. And suffering will ultimately give way to salvation to see hope in the text. Which brings us finally to the most curious of prophecies that Matthew references here in verse 23. Look at it with me once more. Now when Joseph went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene, Now, if you look for a predictive prophecy in the Old Testament that says Jesus will be called a Nazarene, you will not find one. Nazareth did not exist, and there is no such prophecy. You'll notice that Matthew quotes not prophet, but prophets. His purpose is not to quote a specific saying of the prophets, but a general theme. That theme is that the Messiah would be despised and rejected. Nazareth is a despised place that nobody likes. So you can think of like Cleveland or New Jersey. I mean, you meet people from there and you go, gross, like who's from there? But it's more rural than that, so maybe think Sardis. <laughs> I'm sorry, Lisa. It was just low-hanging fruit. It was right there. With a great gasp! Uh, it's somewhere that's despised. It's a small town. Nobody comes from Nazareth. Remember when what Philip says to Nathaniel in John's Gospel? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is despised, as Jesus will be. Matthew's setting us up to understand what will become clear later. Jesus is the Messiah who will be rejected. He will be crucified. He wants us to know that Jesus of Nazareth is Isaiah's promised king. He is Isaiah's suffering servant. He is Isaiah's conqueror. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy. See, the rejection of the servant most clearly in Isaiah 53 Hear these familiar words. They are words that Matthew is alluding to. The prophet will be rejected. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many And makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus lives to make intercession for us, church. Jesus, like Moses, accomplished salvation for his people. He lives up to his name. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for us. Jesus saves his people from their sins by way of the cross. On the cross, he took the wrath due to his people, to all who will repent and trust in him. On the cross, he crushed the head of the serpent. On the cross, he put all the powers of hell to flight. On the cross, Jesus was nailed so that we might be made free. On the cross, he died so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. On the cross, Jesus poured out his blood to purify a people for himself. On the cross, Jesus died so that we might live. And out of the grave he came, so that all who trust in him can be free from death, free from fear free to worship God as we were made to, free to hope in the eternal life that is to come and that we already taste together. This is the King. This is the one Matthew wants us to know. The one who came and was crucified for sinners who was laid in a grave and who rose victoriously from death after three days. Jesus wants us to know the king who holds the keys of death and Hades. Jesus wants us to know the king who has a sword in his mouth and who is returning on horseback to make everything sad untrue, to eliminate his enemies and to bring his kingdom in its fullness so that all his people will cry out in triumphant joy evermore, holy, 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 Worthy is the Lamb. He is worthy. Bow down and worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ is worthy. We thank you that we can know you as Father rather than as Judge only because of His sacrifice we thank you for your holy spirit who takes your word and allows us to hear him so that we can be moved from death to life we thank you that we know you we thank you for the great love with which you loved us by sending your son to take on flesh to take on a crown of thorns to die for us to take up the throne of David and rule over us. We thank you for our good and mighty king through whom we have salvation. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.